Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chronic Fatigue and Burnout Recovery Podcast. Today I'm going to be doing the part three of the series in how to have better periods with chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic illness in general or just life in general, whether you have a chronic illness or not. If you haven't already listened to part one and part two of this series, I'd highly recommend that you go back and listen to those first as that will give you some context for some of the things I'm going to be talking about in this specific episode. This episode is going to focus on how we can support the body and what specific interventions we can take for better balanced hormones and therefore hopefully smoother periods or less cyclical fluctuations in energy or symptoms as we move through the different stages of our cycle each month. So I like to break this down into two main categories. These different categories are the upstream influences and the downstream influences. The upstream influences are the things happening upstream of hormone production that are influencing the levels of hormones being produced. So if you listened to the previous episode, I would have talked about hormones like progesterone and estrogen and what happens maybe when estrogen is too high or too low or progesterone is too low. Sometimes we also do see that progesterone is very high, but for the most part, it's low and that's a problem for many women. So what are the things that are influencing the production of these hormones specifically? And then we've got the downstream influences, and these are the things that are influencing clearance of these hormones from the body. Because if we are producing a lot of hormone and we're not able to clear that hormone from the body, that's going to start to create an imbalance, and that imbalance is then going to be experienced as hormonal symptoms. Very often, but not always, as estrogen dominance. So what are the upstream influencing factors? The upstream influences are things like inflammation. So anything that is driving inflammation in the body, which would usually be something like food, toxins, trauma, or microbes, all of these things will potentially raise levels of inflammation in the body, and that can influence the production of sex hormones. Blood sugar, and I did a whole episode on blood sugar in episode 10, but we'll be talking about it a little bit here. Stress and the nervous system, and again, there's a whole episode on the nervous system, but we'll be talking about it a little bit here. Toxic load, genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms, so these are polymorphisms in our genes which influence certain genes and how they're expressed in the body and therefore hormonal balance as a consequence potentially and then sex hormone binding globulin. So I'll start with these. I'll go into each one in a little bit more detail and then we'll move over to the downstream influences. 
So the first one is inflammation. And inflammation affects our hormones because it can potentially increase the production of estrogen from testosterone. So inflammation can influence a specific gene, which is known as aromatase, and it increases the aromatase activity, which means we're taking our wonderful testosterone and we're making potentially too much estrogen, and this can drive estrogen dominance and associated symptoms of estrogen dominance. Excess amounts of estrogen then further increase inflammation in the body. So then this is playing into the inflammatory environment, which is probably not helpful for chronic fatigue or your health in general. So really, when we're looking at addressing hormones, we're really looking at the bigger picture of addressing inflammation in the body, which you're probably doing anyway as part of your chronic illness or fatigue recovery journey. But here we're looking at things that are influencing the immune system. So the gut is a really important place to start, but it could also be parasites, it could also be mold, it could also be viral infections, it could be bacterial overgrowth, it could even be things that you're eating in your diet, certain foods which are increasing inflammation in the body, maybe eating too much processed food, too many processed seed oils, increasing the amount of inflammatory fats that you're consuming, and then not enough fresh foods, not enough whole foods, not enough omega-3, not enough plants, not enough color. So all of these different things will influence the inflammatory environment, and that potentially can increase estrogen, which then creates a vicious cycle of more estrogen, creating more inflammation, which then creates even more estrogen. And we know as well that estrogen impacts the breakdown of histamine in the body, So more histamine-like symptoms, more muscle activation syndrome-like symptoms as well. Then the next upstream influencer is blood sugar. And blood sugar highs and lows throughout the day are stressful to anyone. When blood sugar is too high, that's potentially damaging to the mitochondria. And when blood sugar is too low, that's also potentially damaging to the mitochondria. So ideally, we want to have blood sugar fluctuating within a healthy and normal range, never going too high, never going too low. And this will be optimal for mitochondria. And we need healthy mitochondria to make healthy hormones. But it's also going to be great for your energy. We also know that when blood sugar goes too high and insulin levels go too high, we can see increases in inflammation, we can see increases in histamine production, and that is potentially going to feed into that conversion of testosterone to estrogen and increase estrogen dominance. So we want to get blood sugar under control. It goes beyond the scope of this specific episode to talk about the details of how we do that, but there are several episodes you can listen to now. You can listen to the blood sugar episode. You can listen to the episode I did on the ketogenic diet. You can listen to the episode I did on fasting, and you can also listen to the episode I did on just generally eating for energy, because generally eating for energy means that you're probably going to be eating for good blood sugar balance as well. 
So the next thing we want to think about is stress management. And again, it goes beyond the scope of this specific episode to talk about the ins and outs of stress management. But the mechanism involved is really when we're under a lot of stress, our brain, which would normally communicate with the ovaries to get them to produce hormones, is probably talking more to the adrenal glands. So while the brain is busy trying to deal with stress, your body is receiving the signal, it's not safe for you to get pregnant. And even if pregnancy is not the goal, remember that ovulation is the goal when you want better balanced hormones, whether your intention is to fall pregnant or not. So when the nervous system is dysregulated, we're in a threat, we're in a stress response. And there's many, many different things that would cause stress in our lives. Everything from you know, our thoughts to our behaviors to imprints on things that have happened to us in the past. So again, you may just want to go back and listen to the nervous system episode. And if you need help with stress in your life, then I would highly recommend my nurturing resilience program as well. So then the next thing is sex hormone binding globulin. And I touched on this in previous episodes. As the name suggests, sex hormone binding globulin is a binding globulin or a binding molecule that is binding up hormones in your bloodstream. So if sex hormone binding globulin is too low, we potentially have an excess of hormones circulating in the bloodstream and that can cause imbalances, for example, estrogen dominance. And if sex hormone binding globulin is too high, we can potentially have an excess of bound hormones in the bloodstream. And therefore, we can maybe have symptoms of low hormone production. So for example, low progesterone or even low estrogen, which is really important for healthy mitochondria. So if estrogen is too high, that can be a problem. But if estrogen is too low, that can be a problem as well. So things that would cause low sex hormone binding globulin would be excess visceral adipose tissue, so excess belly fat, insulin resistance, which is why blood sugar management is so important, stress, which is why nervous system regulation is so important, inflammation, which is why we want to get to those underlying causes of inflammation, whether that's food, toxins, microbes, or trauma. And then also issues with your thyroid, which is one of the reasons why I always recommend thyroid testing. We should always be testing the thyroid anyway in fatigue just to rule in or out whether or not it's an issue. Things that would potentially cause high sex hormone binding globulin might be, again, thyroid dysfunction, which is why we want to test. Poor intake of plants, so having a high intake of plants can support healthy sex hormone binding globulin. And again, blood sugar imbalances. So we really want to make sure that the diet is optimal for blood sugar control and also optimal in terms of plant intake. So then moving on, another thing that can influence estrogen dominance specifically is toxicity. And here what I'm talking about are chemicals that we may be exposing ourselves to from perhaps the beauty care products that we use, 
maybe the things that we're using to cook our food or food packaging or things that we store our food in. All of these different things can leach chemicals into our food or we can absorb chemicals through our skin. And this can potentially have an estrogen mimicking impact on the body, which basically means that certain chemicals can look like estrogen to the body. They can bind to estrogen receptor sites in the body. And when they do this, they create an estrogenic effect, potentially a stronger estrogenic effect than estrogen itself. So here is where we want to become toxin aware. And there is um, a huge proliferation now, or unfortunately now people are becoming much more aware of toxins in their food and toxins in their beauty care and toxins in their home cleaning products and their air and their water. There are a lot of healthy, natural, organic and sustainable beauty care products, cleaning products um, available. And you can also educate yourself around certain things that you can be using in the kitchen for example avoiding plastics avoiding non-stick pans rather using things that are stainless steel or ceramic and would all probably be preferable things that you can use when you're doing your cooking and then the final part of these upstream factors are single nucleotide polymorphisms which relate to changes in your genes or specific polymorphisms in your genes which impact the activity of different enzymes. So for example, if you have a certain genetic SNP, as we would call it, it might mean that some enzymes act a little bit more sluggishly than others and this can affect the metabolism of hormones. So specifically in this case, I'm referring back to the aromatase hormone or the aromatase enzyme, shall I say, which I already mentioned, which influences the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. And although our genes can influence the activity of these enzymes, remember that the genes load the gun and the environment pulls the trigger. So what that means is that the environment in which we bathe our genes affects the activity of these enzymes. And yes, having a genetic SNP might mean that you are susceptible to altered enzyme activity, but it's not a death sentence. There are things that you can do to influence your genes and to influence the activity of these enzymes. So for aromatase specifically, it's upregulated when there is inflammation. It's upregulated when someone is overweight, probably because people with who are overweight tend to have more inflammation. It's upregulated with stress and zinc deficiency and high levels of insulin. So that would mean that whether or not you know you have a genetic SNP for aromatase, you would probably want to be managing inflammation, managing your weight, addressing nutrient deficiencies like zinc, managing stress levels and managing insulin. But as I mention all of these things, this is probably nothing different to what you would be doing anyway for your health as you recover from fatigue. So these are not new and additional interventions you need to take. It's actually just about understanding how the same interventions solve different problems in the body. 
Additionally, we can also support aromatase or down-regulate aromatase, which means we keep more testosterone and we're not making so much estrogen through the consumption of soy. Obviously, soy can be a little bit of a controversial nutrient. I prefer unprocessed soy. So instead of having soy yogurt or soy cheese or other types of soy products to rather just have edamame beans, flaxseed, flavonoids, which are specific phytonutrients found in plants, green tea, vitamin C, a nutrient which is called chrysin, which is often taken in supplement form, and stinging nettle, which obviously you can have, but it's easier taken in supplement form. So all of these things can potentially be supportive if somebody is a little bit lower on the testosterone side and a little bit higher on the estrogen side. So that brings us to the end of the upstream factors. And as I've highlighted already, a lot of the things that I've mentioned are things you would probably want to be doing anyway as part of your fatigue recovery journey. But there might be a few specific foods or a few specific supplements you can add in that may be particularly helpful. The next thing I want to discuss and move into are the downstream factors. And the downstream factors are the factors which are influencing estrogen clearance from the body. So we clear estrogen from the body in three different phases. Phase one, phase two, and then phase three. So phase one refers to the first stage of estrogen detoxification. It's when our estrogen is converted into an intermediary molecule, often referred to as either 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, or 16-hydroxy estrogen. And your body chooses, depending on the environment, on your health status, on your genetic predispositions, how much estrogen you make into 2-hydroxy, how much estrogen you make into 4-hydroxy, and how much estrogen you make into 16-hydroxy. And this is actually something that you can test on a Dutch test. It will give you the breakdown of the 2, 4, and 16-hydroxy. And why this is important is because 2-hydroxy is the preferred and more healthful pathway, whereas making too much 4-hydroxy or too much 16-hydroxy estrogen can potentially be damaging towards health. So the first thing we want to check is that we're metabolizing estrogen down the correct pathway, and I'll talk about how we can support that in a moment. Then we basically get to this sort of intermediary stage molecule, which then needs to be converted through phase two detoxification. And phase two detoxification happens through the methylation process, specifically with the enzyme COMPT, catechol or methyltransferase enzyme. And this is another area where we can have genetic predispositions which would potentially make this enzyme a little bit sluggish. And so this enzyme needs certain nutrients such as vitamin B6, magnesium, glutathione or N-acetylcysteine is also greatly influenced by the inflammatory environment of the body. 
And so once we've taken the intermediary molecules, we've methylated them, then they are ready to be excreted, which happens through the bowels. So you would take your methylated estrogens, they would go into the bowels, and then you would poop them out. And that's how we essentially detoxify estrogen. So if there's anything happening in the bowels, that is maybe not optimal, this can influence estrogen detoxification, which can make estrogen susceptible to re-entering circulation in the body. And so what we might be looking for here mainly is constipation. And to be constipated would mean that you're not having a daily bowel movement. Ideally, you would be having a bowel movement even two to three times a day. But if you're not having a daily bowel movement consistently, then you're constipated. And this would be impacted by your diet, just not eating enough or not eating enough fiber specifically. can be influenced by medications you're taking, by the balance of bacteria in your gut, by stress, or even if you have an underactive thyroid, that could influence bowel movements. So if hormones are of concern, but I would argue if your health is of concern, we definitely want to make sure that you're having a bowel movement once a day. And this we can do by playing around with the fiber balance in your diet, maybe playing around with the bacteria in your gut. So perhaps taking something like a probiotic or using fermented foods to create a more preferable balance of bacteria. But sometimes we also need to use supplements to help the bowels move. And there are specific supplements that you can use. One that I use frequently with my clients is the cell core bowel mover but you can use other supplements as well. And this is best something that you discuss with a practitioner. So although I've discussed these downstream factors as phase one detoxification, phase two detoxification, and phase three, which is your bowel movements, the way that we address them is in reverse. So that means we want to address phase three, which is bowel movements first. Then when we know the bowels are moving, then we can go in and address methylation if necessary. And this is when a Dutch test would tell you if that's necessary or not. And then the final thing would be to optimize phase one detoxification, which is when estrogen has the opportunity to go down either the 2, 4, or 16 hydroxy pathway. And there are various foods and or supplements that you can take, which can positively influence your estrogen clearance. And I have a whole list here, which includes soy, so your edamame beans, flaxseed. Flaxseed is obviously a great source of fiber, so good for bowel movements. Caffeine, if tolerated. Rosemary, grapefruit, peppermint, cruciferous vegetables especially. So things like broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts are really great for hormone detoxification, if tolerated. Some people don't tolerate sulfur foods so well if they have GI imbalances, which is why we want to address the gut first before we work on the phase one detoxification. Oily fish, curcumin, ginger, green tea, pomegranate, garlic, again, a very nice sulfurous food, coriander, dill, mint, citrus, beetroot, and onions. So that's really just a whole list of healthy food. And it's 
pretty easy, I think, to include all of those foods just generally in your day-to-day diet. And I think if you are eating a whole foods diet, if you are eating an abundance of plants, you probably are going a long way to support healthy biotransformation of estrogen. The things we want to avoid would be things like omega-6 oils, so usually found in confectionery, processed foods, takeaways, fried foods, which you probably would be avoiding on your fatigue recovery journey. Excess sugar, excess carbohydrates, foods which have been blackened and burnt like grilled foods, fried foods, or barbecued meats, and also pesticides. So if you can buy organic, but if you can't buy organic, then just making sure you're washing your fruit and veg very well before you eat them. And then if you do need a little bit of a top up from a supplement perspective, something known as DIM, so methane, which is the active component in your cruciferous vegetables, can be taken as a supplement. And I see very often that that shows up very well on Dutch tests when um, someone's taking it. It really does help to shift their estrogen metabolism to that preferred 2-hydroxy pathway. So once we've got estrogen being cleared down the preferred 2-hydroxy pathway, then we can intervene as necessary to support the COMT enzyme as I've already discussed. And then Finally, estrogen is cleared through the bowels, as I've already discussed. And here, the balance of bacteria in your gut, having a healthy balance and regular bowel movements is going to be the most important step. So there's one more thing here, which I just wanted to highlight about the digestive health piece. And this is that the balance of bacteria in the gut as well as the balance of yeast in the gut is important for healthy hormones. If we have excess amounts of yeast, they can produce what are known as mycoestrogens, which are essentially recognized as estrogen in the body. But also yeast can coexist with other bacteria in the intestines and they can produce an enzyme which is known as beta-glucuronidase. And this enzyme can transform the detoxified estrogen coming from your liver and send it back to circulation. So essentially your liver has done such a fantastic job to do the phase one detoxification and do the phase two detoxification and it sends off the detoxified estrogen to the gut But if you have a high level of this beta-glucuronidase because you have yeast in your gut or you don't have a good balance of bacteria in your gut, all that good work done by the liver can potentially be undone or at the very least reduced. So we do want to work on digestive health as a whole. I think there's a lot to be said for doing a stool test if you do have hormonal imbalances because infections in the gut can be a source of inflammation in the first place, driving up estrogen and obviously many other mechanisms where digestive health is associated with fatigue. So we do want to address any yeast overgrowth. We do want to address any dysbiosis. But in the short term, you can supplement with something known as calcium deglucurate, which inhibits this enzyme, the beta-glucuronidase enzyme. From a food perspective, you can consume foods which are high in glucaric acid, and that would be things like oranges, apples, grapefruit, and cruciferous vegetables if tolerated. 
So that brings me to the end of this series on how to have better periods with chronic fatigue or any other chronic illness or life in general. Really, this information is applicable to anyone, no matter what their health status is. It's been quite a lot to digest, I'm sure, a lot to wrap your head around, but hopefully the biggest takeaways you've gotten from this series is that a lot of the things we would do to support hormone balance are the foundations of fatigue recovery anyway. And there may just be a few little tweaks here and there that we can do a few things which are hormone specific that will help you with your fatigue recovery journey and having more balanced hormones across the month. So I will see you in the next episode. Until then, have a wonderful fatigue recovery day.